This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Yaa Jossi discusses her stunning debut novel, Homegoing. Then PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot discusses Barnes & Noble's recent losses. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. We've got uh, a fair amount of movement on the fiction list. Stephen King is still there at number one, as he was last week, but there's a new number two, three, four, and five. Oh, wow. So uh, probably a lot of people who are wishing Stephen King didn't have a book out this week. (laughs) (laughs) I could have been number one. I could have been a contender, but um, but they're still right up near the top. And uh, number two, we have Tom Clancy, Duty and Honor by Grant Blackwood. Um, This is his second thriller featuring Jack Ryan Jr. Uh, Obviously, he's continuing theories created by the late, great Tom Clancy. We call this a a fast-moving thriller and uh, say that Blackwood, uh, like Mark Greeny, who has also contributed to the Clancy franchise, is very good at hewing to Clancy's overall vision while producing books that are better written than the originals. Oh, wow. Because there's a lot to recommend Tom Clancy's original books, but quality... Smooth prose was, uh, was not one, was not <laughs> one of them. Uh, so, uh, so those who have been following the series will appreciate uh, this installment right. and look forward to the next. And number three, we have another thriller, Foreign Agent by Brad Thor. This is the 15th book in uh, the Scott Horvath series. We don't have a review of this, but uh, it's a pretty standard present day thriller uh, involving a clandestine American operation in a uh, near the Syrian border. They're trying to find the director of social media for ISIS. Mm. So a uh, very modern plot there. And uh, yeah, I expect this is a good plain reading. Uh, right. This is uh, exactly the sort of book that we tend to see selling very well right. in the summer. Uh, at number four is Here's to Us by Ellen Hildebrand. This is the other kind of book we tend to see selling very well in the summer. As we were saying last week, we're getting lots of books with pictures of beaches on the covers, letting you know this is a beach read. This is another one. It has uh, three women on the cover all lounging around on the beach. And those three women uh, are three widows, as it were, um, three women who were once married, uh, presumably consecutively rather than simultaneously to a celebrity chef uh, who uh, screwed them all over uh, one after the other. <laughs> and when he dies, um, he his, his, uh, his final wish is for everybody to assemble in Nantucket to say their farewells. And so his three ex-wives and their children all have to come together under one roof and try to figure out how not to kill one another. Oh. Uh, we don't have a review of this book yet, but uh, in, in some ways, this is the kind of story that's review proof. Um, if, if this is the sort of thing you're into, then yeah. you will snatch it up as soon as you see that sandy cover. Yeah, and Nantucket, uh, I think there's been two or three uh, books set in Nantucket. It's That's the uh, place popular. this summer. Yeah. That's the place. <laughs> Maybe next year we'll have this whole rash of Cape May books. Ooh, Cape May could be nice. A whole different story. There. A very different story. <laughs> and at number five, we have The Girls by Emma Klein. We gave this a starred review, uh, saying it's a provocative, wonderfully written debut in which a middle-aged woman looks back on her experiences with a California cult that's reminiscent of the Manson family. Uh, so this uh, this woman was 14 years old in 1969, and uh, when she meets a raunchy and careless 19-year-old grifter, uh, she uh, the two of them start embarking on a series of sort of wild adventures, uh, leading them to this strange ranch. Uh, inhabited by a cult. And uh, we say that Klein is especially perceptive about the emulation and competition, the longing and loss that connect her novels, women and their difficult, sometimes destructive passages to adulthood. And it's less about one night of violence than about the harm we can do to ourselves and others in our hunger for belonging and acceptance. Mm. So this is definitely a, a more intense, uh, you know, more, uh, 
mind engaging right. read, uh, but uh, definitely one that's worth putting in the effort. And for. if I'm not mistaken, uh, Emma Klein, I think got a seven figure advance for that. So that I don't know about, yeah. but uh, you know, if if that's true, then Random House is probably very happy to see right. her up there at number five. Um, yeah. Very respectable first week showing. Number 11, we have The Barkskins by Annie Pro, which uh, we have a signature review by Gabe Habash, who's our fiction mm-hmm. reviews editor. And he says that very long novels, uh, this one is 736 pages, yeah. uh, have perennially commanded our attention. Uh, this one is remarkable not just for its length, but for its scope and ambition. It spans more than 300 years and includes a cast of dozens, and it's structured in 10 novella-length sections beginning with two Frenchmen arriving in New France, which is now Canada, in 1693. And then the subsequent sections alternate between each man's uh, descendants, uh, tracing displacement, resettlement, and death, finishing in 2013. So this is this is interesting. This this two-part structure yeah. is uh, similar in some ways to uh, the book Homegoing by Yao Jiasi, who we'll be talking with later right. on the show. Right. Um, this idea of, of tracing people beginning uh, from you know, a, a particular fixed point and then following the contrasting stories of two different people's descendants. And uh, our review says it's exhilarating to read Pearl, a master storyteller. She is as adept at placing us in dripping cold forests as in stuffy parlors. Uh, Despite the book's length, nothing seems extraneous. Not once does the reader sense the story slipping from her grasp, resulting in the kind of immersive reading experience that only comes along every few years. I read this book as well. It's one of the best books I've read this year. One of my favorite books, but my by far both nonfiction and fiction. I should say it's one of the best novels that I've read this year. And um, I'm a fan of Annie Proulx, and I, I I think this is a masterpiece. I think this is the best book she's written. Well, it certainly uh, seems to be getting plenty of recognition. Yeah, great. Uh, and I think we'll hear people talking about yeah. it as an award contender as well. Yeah, I definitely think so. And uh, finally, down at number 22 is Liberty's Last Stand by Stephen Kuntz. And uh, this is back to thriller territory. We call it a provocative thriller. And the president is Barry Satoro, who's a villain, and his existence as an Obama stand-in should give you a good sense of uh, what tack this particular book takes. In this case, he's due to leave office in five months when he uses a convenient terrorist attack to declare martial law, adjourn Congress, suspend the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, and name himself dictator of the United States. Mm. And naturally, a couple of good guys need to band together to take him down. Um, A couple of uh, ex-CIA folks uh, primarily leading the charge. We say that Kuntz's excellent action scenes uh, grind to a halt as characters stop to give fervent speeches about freedom, but those who don't care for Obama or his policies will find a lot to like. Mm. And uh, really, the parallels are are not opaque or or vague. Um, President Sotoro is, quote, a self-proclaimed black messiah. Uh, he's, he's implemented a policy called Sotoro Care, and uh, EPA regulations are also derided fairly heavily in the book. So this is a book mm-hmm. that knows its audience. Liberty's Last Stand, you uh, you definitely have a sense of who this is aimed at. Um, but right. people in that audience will be perfectly happy to gobble it up. Right, exactly. And that's what we've got on the fiction list. Nonfiction isn't quite as rich uh, uh, this week. Just one little bit of note. Uh, so the Post-Tony Awards, where the musical Hamilton got quite a few, uh, received quite a few. The, the book, The Hamilton, the Revolution by Lanwell Miranda and Jeremy McCarter is up 69%. And that sold almost 16,000 copies uh, this week. So, Very impressive. Um, so that's, that's pretty great. But it also gave boost to a 2005 book. Alexander Hamilton biography by Ron Chernow. Which so, is what the musical was based on in no, great part. So. so anyway, it's just kind of interesting to see how events will boost sales of current books, but also books that have been published a while ago. So The Chernow biography is uh, is my summer reading. So oh, great. that's, uh, oh, that's nice. one. I'm very glad that I have an ebook because it's long. Yeah, it's long. <laughs> ending. Yeah. Um, yep. But, uh, but yeah, you know, that, that's one that I'm, I'm, I'm definitely contributing yep. to that, to that Hamilton boost. Yes. Yes. I know you were, you've been a, a fan, fan since uh, before the hype. 
I remember. <laughs> Mostly before that. So just taking a look at some of the books we have, some of the nonfiction books we have. At number six debuting is Bobby Brown's book, Every Little Step, My Story Memoir. This is, talks about his relationship with, with Whitney Houston and really his his success and downfall from R&B, hip-hop uh, sensation. And uh, so that's at number six. We do not have a review of this. as some so many books by big personalities. They were embargoed till the last uh, the last possible moment. Then we have Ego is the Enemy by Ryan Holiday at number eight. The book is filled with uh, tales of obsessive visionary geniuses who remade the world in their image and with sheer, almost irrational force. Uh, so it's just talking about big figures in, in history. Number 13, we don't have a review of that. Number 13, Tears to Triumph, The Spiritual Journey from Suffering to Enlightenment by Marianne Williamson. Number 13, uh, this is uh, reading from the copy. Again, we don't have a review of this. Internationally recognized teacher, speaker, and New York Times bestselling author of A Return to Love argues that our desire to avoid pain is actually detrimental to our lives. So address it. Scaling Lean, Mastering the Key Metrics for Startup Growth by Ash Mora is a, uh, uh, is a business book. And finally, the book we do have a review of, Outlander Kitchen, the official Outlander companion book. And this is by Teresa Carl Sanders. And um, this is a kind of a companion cookbook to the series, The Outlanders. And uh, she includes various dishes of characters and kind of is a little bit of a continuation uh, with a little bit of insight on, on some of the characters in the book. So that's kind of interesting. Number 20. I'm so delighted by how those books are and the TV series are doing like it's suddenly a thing. They've been around for such a long right. time and to suddenly be uh, bursting out the way they are is yeah. uh, uh, certainly making me very happy. Yeah, oh, very good. And that's it. That's what we got. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Yal Jossi tells us about exploring the African diaspora. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Michelle Borba. I'm the author of Unselfie, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Yad Yassia on the line. Her new book is Homegoing. Hi, Yad. I'm so glad you could join us. Hi, very glad to be here. So tell us about your novel, uh, which takes place in Ghana and America, beginning in the 1760s and extending well beyond. Yeah, so Homegoing is a novel that follows the family lineage of two half-sisters born in 18th century Ghana. The first half-sister, Afia, is the Fanti wife of the British governor of the Cape Coast Castle, which is a slave fort um, on the coast of what is now Ghana. And the second sister, Essie, is kept in the castle as a slave before being sent to America. So each, uh, each chapter deals with a different descendant and kind of alternates back and forth between the Ghanaian side of the family and the American side of the family, ending in present-day America. So tell us a little bit about these half-sisters. Let's start with Afia. Um, Afia is known as Afia the Beauty. She grows up um, relatively comfortably in uh, Fanti village, uh, which is uh, kind of what is now known as the central region of Ghana. Uh, it's the, the area by the coast. Um, and her, her village has kind of become one of the stops on the slave trade. Um, so people... Uh, traders who are traveling down from the, the inlands will stop in her village before selling, selling their slaves to, um, either, you know, the British or the Dutch or whoever. Um, so, so Ophia's, uh, hometown is kind of, um, enmeshed in, in the slave trade in this way. Um, and as a way of kind of currying favor, uh, with, with the British, her, her, parents um, give her in, in marriage to the British governor of the Cape Coast Castle. And um, give us a sense of what her life is like. Obviously, you're distinguishing between different types of captivity or uh, being enmeshed in, in this colonial paradigm. Um, what, mm-hmm. what are some of the nuances that you're touching on there and the distinctions between how Afia and Essie are caught up in, um, in that setting? Well, Asia, uh, when she's in the village, is um, 
you know, she's the daughter of, of a pretty prominent um, fronting man. He's not he's not a warrior, but but he's he's pretty well off. Um, and her village chief, the person who she's kind of um, hoping to marry and, and in a lot of ways kind of expected to marry, um, has decided to uh, to turn the village into um, just one of these one of these stops along the slave trade. Um, her her village isn't uh, necessarily um, one of the warrior uh, one of the warrior villages. They they aren't um, you know seeking out slaves in that way, but they but they are facilitating trade between um, the different ethnic groups in the in the British. And what about Essie? Now, uh, these two half-sisters, they aren't in touch with each other? They don't know each other? Right. They don't know each other. Um, Asia and Essie share a mother uh, and have different fathers. And Essie um, grows up with their mother, um, kind of unaware that she has this half-sister. Um, Essie is an Ashanti, and she grows up um, kind of in the inland of what is now Ghana, um, and her father is uh, a really prominent Ashanti warrior. Um, the Ashantis uh, are were a, an incredibly powerful nation in in all of Africa at that time period, um, and uh, and uh, her her family kind of uh, had this role um, of of power um, in in the Ashanti. Um, area during that time. And so Essie lives in comfort, um, kind of happily, um, until, um, she becomes one of the captured, um, by, by a rival group, uh, later on. And so she's marched down, in fact, through Ophia's village and into the Cape Coast castle where Ophia is living, uh, upstairs. Mm. And tell us about this group who, who captured her. Um, the group that captured her, the, the novel never names them and, and we're never uh, quite certain which ethnic group they belong to, but um, it's implied that it's a, a, a group that, that her father, um, known as Big Man, has, has fought a war against in the past. And so this, um, this war is kind of their, their revenge on Big Man's village. Um, and so uh, they they come in and and they raid they raid the village and, and capture Ophia in in the crosshairs. So it sounds like one of the things that you're dealing with here is the way that girls and women are kind of used as currency. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you handle that in the novel? Yeah, well, in the first chapter, you know, kind of everything kind of hinges upon. Afia's uh, pending menstruation. You know, she's not ready to be um, given away in marriage until until she's um, until she's started menstruating. And so there's this, this kind of plot to um, to hide her menstruation so they can manipulate where to send her. Her so her stepmother can manipulate where to send her. Um, and in in this way, you know, I guess I was kind of thinking about. Um, how how particularly in this time period uh women women could be could be given away in this way that that you know had them lacking agency though though I think both of the the women in the beginning chapters both Sophia and Essie are are strong in their own way but they um but they but they do lack agency in, in a lot of other ways and so you set up the narrative with uh, alternating voices between the two characters. Uh, tell us how that came about. Um, yeah, I uh, started this book after a trip to the Cape Coast Castle in 2009, um, where uh, I took the tour with the other tourists and, and the guide was talking to us about how the British soldiers would sometimes marry the local women, um, which was something I hadn't heard before, and it really struck me. Um, and from there, he took us down to see the dungeons. Um, and so I kind of immediately started with this image of, of these two these two people, one of whom would be the, the wife of a British soldier and the other would be kept in the in the dungeons as a slave before being sent to America, um, and so kind of because I knew I wanted to to juxtapose um, uh, those two ideas, those who those who 
those who leave and those who stay, I suppose, um, it kind of made sense to, um, to follow this alternating uh, pattern down the line. So the, these two women end up having uh, two sets of descendants that also have their own different stories. Uh, Essie's descendants end up in the American South, and meanwhile, Afia's descendants stay on the Gold Coast. So um, how, mm-hmm. how do you keep those stories from becoming unwieldy as, um, as they sort of go out through the generations? Yeah, um, I tried to to focus on you know just the the POV characters, um, just their their internal lives. I suppose I, I you know I thought of the the long arc obviously of this book was um, was this long time period from from the 18th century to present day, um, and so in that way I knew kind of where where I wanted everything to to end up, but I wanted each individual chapter to just be a slice of that descendant's life. Um, and so I, I tried to keep that, that aspect of it small and intimate, um, and not too, um, and not too, too grand, you know, um, I had a family tree that I put on the wall above my desk. Um, and that really kind of helped me, uh, remember to, to stay focused on, on the character. And where did the title come from? What does what does home mean to these characters, and what does homegoing mean? Um, so traditionally, uh, homegoing refers to slave funerals. The idea was that when a slave died, their spirit could return home to to the country in Africa from which they had been ripped. Um, and uh, that's a term that's still used today among um, African Americans um, for for funerals. Um, and I, I I liked it not just um, for that for that reason, but also for um, the the resonance of the idea that um, that you know you could have these uh, these characters return home um, symbolically in some way. Um, Obviously, the the last two characters in in the book end up back in Ghana, but um, but I think this book kind of also just generally deals with with the idea of of spirits that wander and and are looking for home. So tell us a little bit about life once uh, once they arrive to the uh, southern plantation states. Sure. Um, so Essie's daughter Ness, um, who is the fourth fourth chapter of the novel, um, she ends up in a plantation in Alabama, um, or the part of the chapter or part, the part of the book that we see is her at this plantation in Alabama. Um, and, and she's kind of, you know, kind of a strong woman, but also, um, strong in a stony way, you know, she's kind of got a hardened heart, uh, which she's picked up from, um, from her mother who, who leaves Africa and then kind of decides to never smile again. And so that's kind of Ness's inheritance. Um, but at the same time, I think Ness is a really, um, a really kind of caring and open woman. And she takes in this, this child as kind of her surrogate child. Um, and, and, you know, trouble befalls her because of that. And so we kind of see Ness opening up her heart and getting punished for it in that chapter. Um, and she, she flashes back to this time when she's trying to escape her last plantation. Um, she and her husband and her baby, um, who, who we see two chapters later, um, and so she's kind of had this uh, this horrific experience of of trying to escape slavery um and 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 failing and meanwhile afia's descendants are actually involved in the slave trade so how how did you um depict that what are their what are their lives like yeah um meanwhile afia's son um quay he uh grows up basically in and around the Cape Coast castle. Um, his father, uh, James, has this position of power in the castle um, as the governor, and it's kind of expected that Quay will 
you know, continue the family business, as it were, um, which he does. He he gets sent to England for school, and then he comes back and um, and takes a position in the Cape Coast Castle, um, you know, continuing his his father's legacy. Um, and he also ends up back in Asia's village, uh, kind of facilitating um, trade from the British side uh, through the village. Um, and so, so he's got this this uh, role that continues on, and it isn't until his son James um, kind of decides that he doesn't want to be in the family business anymore um, that we kind of see that start to break. But for those first um, three generations of of a fia side of the family, um, everyone kind of does this this job. So there's a wonderful blurb on the, the back of your book from Tanahasi Coates um, saying that you, you do not scold, you do not excuse, and you do not romanticize uh, what he calls the sin of selling humans. How did you how did you walk that line? How did you approach such a fraught topic and sort of keep it keep the essential humanity of, of the people involved clear in your mind? Mm. Well, I mean I think it was really important to me to not have this be a book that really kind of came down to to black and white answers, uh, you know, black and white, both literally, but also, I suppose, figuratively. Like, I wanted, I didn't want anyone to, to leave this book seeing clear villains and clear heroes, because I don't think that that's how any of this worked. You know, I think... Um, I think it was a lot more nuanced than that. Um, I think uh, it's kind of a harder truth to um, to imagine that that you could have um, had a role in slavery uh, in the ways that that the different um, people um, on on the West African side of things had had roles in slavery. And so I wanted it to I wanted this to kind of show that complexity and and to allow for allow for a lot of gray gray areas. Um, because I think that's, that's, you know, that's the way the, the real world worked and works. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Yajasi, the author of Homegoing. So you yourself were born in Ghana, raised in Huntsville, Alabama. What brought your family to America and to Huntsville? Um, we came to America. My father was getting his um, his PhD in French from Ohio State um, so we came kind of along his his journey through education, and, and then he um, he uh, became a professor, and we kind of moved a lot as as he looked for a tenure track position. And so he uh, so he ended up in Huntsville, uh, and mm-hmm. what was that like growing up there? Um, Huntsville was an interesting place to grow up in. It's a uh, um, it's one of the the bigger cities in Alabama. Um, we grew, I lived on the southeast side of Huntsville, which is predominantly white. And so I spent most of my um, childhood uh, in, in predominantly white schools. Um, Huntsville also didn't have uh, very many um, African immigrants at the time, West, particularly West African immigrants at the time, though there are a lot more now. Um, and so we kind of, it was the first place that we had lived where we were kind of, um, really isolated in this way, both from, both from our, you know, our ethnic, um, our ethnic communities, but also racially, um, really isolated. Um, and so I think that, that had uh, a deep impact on me and kind of how I, how I started to, to think about, um, diaspora and, and the things, the kind of things that I write about in this book. So you had mentioned earlier that that this this book was inspired in part by a trip you took to to Ghana. Uh, when mm-hmm. did you go back? Had you gone back often, or was this your first time back that you had uh, that, that inspired the book? 
Um, I didn't go back often. Uh, I went back with my entire family when I was 11 um, for the first time since since leaving, and then not again until 2009 when I had just turned 20 uh, to research this book. Um, and so I wasn't uh, I wasn't kind of as familiar, I guess, with with Ghana. Some of these characters are. I I I came to it. Um, as a visitor those two times, and I haven't been back since 2009, though I would like to. So tell us a little bit more about, about that trip uh, that, that inspired this, and how did the idea of these, how did the two characters uh, come to mind? I mean, you, you had talked about the, uh, the going down to the cells, but how did these two women uh, come to mind? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the two characters really did just come to mind from from taking that tour, um, when the guide was talking to us about uh, how the how the British soldiers would sometimes marry the local women, um, I couldn't help but but kind of try to imagine what that would be like for for a woman to be living upstairs in this castle that that uh, contained all of these um, other fellow. Uh, Africans who were about to be sent through the middle passage and, and headed God, God only knew where. Um, I, I kind of immediately thought of, thought of that character, Afia, though I didn't know her, um, at the time very well, but, but that was really the, the start of this for me. And then standing in the dungeons moments later and trying to, trying to wrap my head around what it might have been like to, to live in a place like that for three months at a time, um, a place that, you know, had so little air and no light, um, kind of something that you, you can't possibly imagine. But, um, but to think about these, these women and these men who, who were living down there in that dungeon and then to think that just above them there were free, free people, um, free Gold Coast people walking around. It really, um, it really was the impetus for all of this. And then your characters and then the, the, the parts of the book that, that take place in Alabama or, or throughout the South. What kind of research did you do for that, if any? Um, I, I just used uh, various, various books. Um, the, the chapter that kind of took the most research for me was H's chapter. H is um, one of Essie's descendants who ends up in the convict leasing system in Alabama, um, sold by the state of Alabama to a private coal mining company. Um, and I, I knew so little about the convict leasing system that, that his chapter was one of the ones that I um, kind of needed needed to do the most research for. Um, I used a book called Black Prisoners in Their World by Mary Ellen Curtin. It was really helpful. Um, there's also an article um, by Douglas Blackman that was really helpful. Um, but yeah, I just um, I just kind of sought out uh, different books and articles that were about whatever whatever um, political or historical thing was happening in, in the background uh, during the time period um, that I was writing about. So how long did it take you to to do all the research to put the book together to um, polish up the story the way that you wanted? Um, so it's, it's probably been a, almost exactly seven years, I guess, since, mm. uh, since that trip to, to Ghana in 2009. Um, not all of that was spent, you know, writing continuously, but sure. I've been working on, on this book, uh, since then. Yeah. And, um, you've had some wonderful praise for it. Obviously you mentioned that great blurb from Tanahasi Coates, um, lots yeah. of review attention. You're on our bestseller list and congratulations for that. Um, oh, thank you. so, uh, you know, you're obviously you're doing this big publicity push. What's that all been like for you? Um, it's been really, really wonderful. Um, and also kind of just beyond me, you know, um, I, I, think that like most writers, I, you know, just kind of had this quiet life where I worked in solitude and, and just kind of thought about all the things that were, um, that were, 
you know, kind of occupying my mind for for a long period of time. And, and so now to have the book be out um, and to kind of have to, to pivot um, to be more public facing is really interesting and, and new for me. Um, but it's been really lovely uh, going on tour and meeting people who are starting to encounter the book and, and just kind of... Um, yeah, just kind of seeing it out in the world and, and seeing it start to meet its readers has been really one of the most beautiful parts of this. What kind of responses are you getting from people who have connections to the African diaspora, um, not not just the slave trade, but also um, people who are more uh, recent African immigrants, people who are themselves looking at those connections between Africa and African-Americans? Um, I think uh, the responses have been really good, and it, um, I think it kind of has spoken to the fact that um, that people have uh, perhaps been hungry for a book like this that kind of um, tied these ideas together in this way. Um, I think it's something that a lot of African immigrants um, think about um, and, and uh, maybe don't have uh, access to or, or the language for um, what they are thinking about, and so and so, I think um, this book has really kind of added to that conversation in a, in a meaningful way. So, uh, w- what is next for you? What are you working on now? Um, I am working on another novel. Um, I started it uh, a while ago. I kind of like to have something. Um, that I'm working on when I want to avoid the other thing that I was working on. So, um, so yeah, I, I've been working on a new novel. It's, it's already feels very different than, than homegoing, but, um, but it's, it's pretty new still. And do you have a sense of, um, whether this is, you know, the focus for you now, the writing career, is this, uh, is this what you want to do with the rest of your life? Um, yeah, it is what I'd like to do for the rest of my life. Um, I've kind of always known that I that I wanted to be a writer, and so um, hopefully this is this is not the end. Or won't be my first and last book, but um, I'll continue to continue to write novels. Well, I think it's a wonderful beginning. Thank you. Thanks so much. We've been talking with Yad Yassi. You can find her book, Homegoing, in stores right now. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. This has been wonderful. Thank you for having me. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot tells us some grim news from Barnes & Noble. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Richard Zacks, the author of Chasing the Last Laugh, and we're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, our favorite guest, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot, returns in telling us about what's behind BNN's losses of nearly $25 million for fiscal 2016. Well, we're here to talk about that, but also they use the occasion of their uh, final year-end report for the year that ended April 30th to talk about the future. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we can talk uh, – we'll start off with uh, the past. Okay. Uh, as we said, uh, their fiscal year ends uh, ended in April. And they did have a loss that was a little higher than uh, they expected. A lot of that, though, had to do with one-time charges uh, without getting too much into the weeds. They took, you know, a lot of hits for severance um, and a lot of things to do with downsizing the Nook division. Right. And they also had like a $20 million settlement to close out their, the end of their pension plan. So they had to put $20 million or so into that. Wow. So there's all these one-time charges that don't really affect the operations. Okay. But it, in that number, it does point to what's happening with the company in general and the ways to the future. Because what really happened was you know, sales were down around 3% across the company, but by far, the lion's share of the decline came from the Nook division. Right. And, you know, they are just not selling Nook devices or digital content the way they had hoped to. And judging from their remarks at this investor day that they had uh, Thursday morning, it doesn't look like they ever think they were going to sell um, any substantial quantities of readers or ebooks in the future. So, 
The Nook division is not just the devices, it's ebooks as well. That's what they call it as. They call it's a little complicated, and I think that's maybe one of the problems they had. Because mm-hmm. um, BNN.com is its own category, uh-huh. um, and there's the Nook, which is definitely the devices, and which they do lump all digital content under. And it's been no secret that you know ebook sales have been slowing somewhat. Um, so that, that's affected them. Well, this and this ties into another article that uh, you had done about digital fatigue, as it were, about the slowing of of ebooks, uh, ebook purchases. Right, right, yeah, and I, and I think that's affecting them. And yeah. they did mention that they had about two million Nook users, and they still want to keep them, you know, tied to the company somehow. Right. Which is why they are very loath to just shut down the whole operation in this Investors Day. Uh, presentation this morning, a number of analysts who, you know, were at the event were pressing them somewhat like, and one guy more or less said, well, why don't you give the Nook subscribers, you know, some gift card and be done with it and, you know, write it <laughs> off. And I said, no, you know, they don't want to upset them. They think it's, you know, it's a good business. And they were saying they think they have about a 9% share of the, of the ebook market. So it's not something they want to give up uh, at the drop of a hat. But it's a problem. I mean, uh, Nook sales were down 27% last year, right. and they and they lost only $65 million. Wow. Um, which is an improvement oh, only. Yeah, of about $20 million, a little more than that from right. last, what they lost in fiscal 2015. And they hope that over the next couple of years, they'll only be losing about $10 million at the Nook division. So that's why you can see some of the investors and analysts' frustrations about, well, why are you keeping this thing going? And again, some of the analysts were pressing them like, well, does your reduction in losses mean that you think sales are going to start growing again for, uh, for Nook? And they didn't really answer it. <laughs> they gave us very convoluted things, something along the lines of, well, we don't see the trend lines reversing. Since the trend line has been down, I, I guess right, right. we could draw our own conclusions. Right, right, right. Um, but they, you know, and, and then they touched on BarnesandNoble.com. Um, we might have talked about it here as well in an earlier thing about how more and more people are buying books online. And it's not just ebooks, it's print books as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Penguin Random House mentioned a few months ago that now 50% of its, of its sales now are online. Wow. So you figured that would be really good for BarnesandNoble.com, wouldn't yeah. you? Well, <laughs> you're wrong. Right, right. Um, <laughs> sales of BarnesandNoble.com were down last year. They spent 18 months or so um, reconfiguring the back end of the site. Didn't really work too well. They they did 2,200 fixes after they had fixed it uh, to fix it again. So I think they got most of the back-end problems behind it. And before the holiday season this year, they're going to try to spruce up the front end, basically to streamline the whole process and hopefully make it easier to buy stuff. Right. Because, you know, they know they're losing ground in an area where they should be really growing, which has, you know, Amazon has proved, um, you know, is, is quite a lucrative place to be in. But again, when they were asked by analysts, well, do you see BarnesandNoble.com growing? All they would say is, well, we hope this year we'll earn back some of the sales we lost last year, which is not exactly a, a reinforcement <laughs> about wow. where they think they're going to go. There's a lot of bet hedging going on here. Right. So what it comes down to, though, is their physical stores, which they are very excited about. Um, comparable store sales were, were about flat, and they had been down two or three prior years. I think that's good. The revival in print has certainly helped. Um, They only closed eight stores in the last fiscal year, which was the fewest they had closed in over a dozen years or so. Really? They they still have 640 stores. Right. But what they're really excited about are these new concept stores that are starting. And they have four planned over the next uh, 10 months or so. The first one will open in metropolitan New York area, Westchester County, in October. And one of the features of this will be a new and expanded cafe. Okay. So what is so what does the new and expanded cafe mean, and what are the books going to be going along with it, or is it going to be uh, anything different from their other cafes? Uh, by all counts, yes. Okay. Um, they're going to, for starters, offer beer and wine. Um, they're going to have an expanded menu, which they've hired an executive chef to, uh, to look into and create. 
they really didn't go into specifics on what the food will be other than to say it'll be sort of American style mm -hmm. cafe. So I guess we could probably guess what, what they might be offering. They will uh, provide uh, table side service. So I guess they'll have a waiter wow. or a waitress around. Uh, I'm not sure. And they think this will benefit them in a couple of ways. The cafe department, if you will, represents about 10% of their overall revenue. Right. And they think they can grow revenue right from the cafe. Um, but they also think it'll bring more people into the store all day long. Right. I, I guess the cafes do very well in the morning when everybody comes in to get their Starbucks, um, which seems to be a question everybody's most interested about, what happens to Starbucks. And as, as far as we know, Starbucks is staying. Right. But they hope that maybe for lunch or for evenings when the wine is available or, uh, or a beer or if you're having your book club there, um, mm. that that'll draw people in. Sure. Um, so they hope it, that can help make it more of a community community event. And when when you say concept store, I think of the concept behind bookstores is that they sell books. And well, it, is there is there any mention of uh, Barnes and Noble selling books? You know, absolutely. In addition to yeah, yeah. food and beer and wine. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's all to bring people in and then hopefully sell them a few items and books included. They said they'll still have a broad assortment of books. Um, I think the number they said was about 60% of their overall inventory mix will still be books. Mm -hmm. The design of the store, according to what they were saying, they're going to have more space mm -hmm. to try to make it a little brighter. They're going to offer more seating. You know, they, the Barnes & Noble Superstores were one of the first stores of any kind to really offer, you know, nice chairs and couches where nobody wanted to leave. But it sounds like um, they're going to expand on that. They're doing some recategorization of books that they think will make it easier to discover the titles you're looking for. They're looking to try to tie some of their mobile applications, creating some apps. Like if you have a wish list of titles, you can put in your app. And then when you go in the store, uh, you activate it and it'll say, all right, this title's that way, this title's that way, oh, and whatnot. Clever. Yeah, so that, that's, that, that's kind of cool. So how did the, what town in Westchester, uh, what city in Westchester are they? Uh, Eastchester. So okay. the Eastchester Scarsdale border. And what made them decide to, to start there with the, with this concept store? Is it just the affluence or is it that? It's they not far from where I live, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> I was, I was, I was, I was going to ask you that <laughs> exactly. So Jim, you had a specific hand in getting them to, to move there. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but well, it was uh, former borders. Oh. Okay. And by all accounts, it was one of Borders' better performing stores, hmm. which uh, has been vacant since Borders went out of business. And we actually, all kidding aside, <laughs> I did go there because we had heard rumors <laughs> that um, they were one of these concept right. stores was going to be there. We went there in the in the winter and looking through some planning board commission filings and all that. We said, "Hey, they they." They had reps there at the, right. at the planning commission saying this is what we want to do and blah, blah, blah. So we we were pretty confident this is where the store was going to go. And while they declined to come in at the time, they were happy to talk about it uh, today. Um, and it's a, it's a nice spot. It's uh, it's pretty big. And they can do a lot of things with it. There's an outdoor area. Mm. There's plenty of room for this cafe. So uh, they're, they're really excited. Um you know, they promoted uh, Jamie Carey, who was their chief operating officer, to a new title with a, uh, I think he's being called Vice President of Development and the Restaurant Group. Mm. So, uh, it, it does show, um, you know, that they're very serious about this. Right. And now they said if it works, which they expected to, they could roll it out to other Barnes & Noble stores. And they said they have cafes in about Oh, 588 more store or other stores. Right. So how this, but well, they didn't really go into details about how that would uh, all be implemented because they are spending, it sounds like a fair amount of money on these new stores. I think about $2 million at the minimum. But, you know, they really seem to think that they can make the, their physical stores community centers. They talked a lot about content and community as the, the two pillars they want to build on. And, and they certainly didn't sound like you know, one thing we should probably clear up, some reports make it sound like they're on death's door. Um, they're not. I mean, they're a $4 billion company, and they're, they're EBITDA, you know, earnings before what taxation, all that stuff. You know, it's still, it's still fairly solid. But they do have their challenges, and, and they know it. But it looks like they're really going to be betting on, on the stores. And because what's striking is, that this we just talked about, is that 
they don't they don't see any revenue growth coming from Nook or digital, and they don't see really any revenue growth of any real size coming from their online business. Right. So that leaves it with one other component, and that is their physical stores. Right. Now, right. did any, did anyone mention Amazon moving into? Bricks and mortar is that sort of the the elephant in the room? Uh, not directly. They one somebody had reported once that all the new concept stores will probably mirror Amazon's stores, and Barnes and Nobles took great offense to that, saying, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> "We're not going to do that." Because, and to be fair, you know, Amazon we think has about fifteen thousand titles, right? Right. I mean, there's superstores, Barnes & Noble, or 30 and more. I assume they'll have roughly that same thing now. So, I think they've gone out of their way to make sure, sure it doesn't look like an Amazon store. And nobody really brought it up other than to say, hey, how do you compare yourself to Amazon stores? And that's when they gave a little bit more details about how they're going to do some signage and they're going to have more tables, they think, with curated... Um, displays of certain categories um you know they're beefing up their their three hottest um growth areas have been adult coloring books mm -hmm. graphic novels and manga and wow. young adults yep so sounds right those are the, the areas they're expanding on um and they think they think there's room for growth in all of those. Well, the beer and wine will definitely bring in the teenagers who are reading <laughs> the young adult books in the manga. Uh, that, that's, uh, uh, that's targeted. So, <laughs> so it's an interesting time for them. I mean, they did yeah. sound pretty energized um, because they are putting. I mean, the nook pretty much behind them um, as much as they can. Um, I mean, they talk about there'll be a, one new device coming out. They have a deal with Samsung for devices. Um, so they still need to keep some presence there because they do talk about this omni-channel right. approach. And the Nook is the best way to give you or a customer a book anytime, anyplace, anywhere. And that's obviously the best way to do it is through some sort of thing you can download. But in terms of real, real growth, um, it's all coming from the stores. Because even if you look at last year, I mean, their retail segment was $4 billion dollars. And Nook was wow. under two hundred million. Right. So and on that two hundred million they lost sixty million dollars. <laughs> wow. So that's not where you want to put your money. Right. Nope. Yep. Well Jim, thank you very much for that detailed overview. It's uh it is good to hear that Barnes and Noble is not uh, in the process of keeling over and collapsing. So. No, I think that uh I mean they were doing projections out through twenty twenty, so they have a plan. Good. 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 <laughs> Glad to hear it. Well maybe they'll uh, they'll take that uh that store they vacated on eighth street and sixth avenue that's been standing empty for so many years and turn it into a Barnes and Noble restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> and meanwhile Jim will know where to find you after hours. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Jim. It's always good to have you on the show. Thank you guys. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Alexis M. Smith, author of Merrill Island, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with Arthur Lubau, author of Diane Arbus, Portrait of a Photographer. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 